Hi, I'm Abby Mercado, co-founder and CEO of Rescripted, former VC investor and ever entrepreneur, fierce advocate for women and mom of IVF twins. Welcome to Women's Health Mavericks, a podcast dedicated to shining a light on the people who are moving the needle when it comes to women's health and wellness. From inspiring entrepreneurs and innovators to leaders of big brands defining culture, to movers and shakers of biosciences companies dedicated to treating women, we'll introduce you to the people, the ideas, and the businesses that are changing the face of women's health in America and across the globe. With these change makers on our side, the future of women's health is bright. Now, let's get into it. Good morning, Women's Health Mavericks listeners. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to Jackie Rotman, the founder and CEO of Center for Intimacy Justice. Jackie was drawn to start Center for Intimacy Justice, a social change organization committed to equity and well-being in people's intimate lives after being raised in a family that talked loudly and proudly about sexuality, as well as a traumatic event she faced while attending an Ivy League institution. In January of 2022, Center for Intimacy Justice published a report describing Meta's censorship of health ads for women and people of diverse genders. 100% of the 60 organizations they studied experienced meta platforms rejecting their advertisements, and 50% had their entire advertising account suspended by meta at some point. I wanted to chat with Jackie to get the the behind-the-scenes take and to hear more about what she's doing to fight discrimination on behalf of companies just like Rescripted. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Abby. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, we were talking before the podcast and I said, Jackie, I'm just so excited to talk to you. I think we have about a million mutual friends in the women's health space and the reproductive and sexual health space. And she said, is there a particular person who you might have heard about me from? And I was like, I think everybody knows who you are in this space. You are our hero. So thank you for doing what you do. So let's talk about what you do. Just tell us about yourself. Who is Jackie? Tell us about your background, how you got here, and how you decided to found and become the CEO of the Center for Intimacy Justice. Thank you so much for those beautiful words. I feel like every person in a women's health space is impacted by tech censorship, which we'll talk a lot about in this podcast. And like everyone in this space who's doing something to change something about women's health, they're my heroes. And so my favorite job where literally my job is to take down barriers in the ways of the people who I think are superheroes to help them make a bigger change. So I feel like everyone in this space is a hero. And that's why I'm doing this work because I feel like society should treat them that way. They shouldn't have barriers in the way. Amazing. Amazing. We're both (laughs) smiling ear to ear for people who can't see us because this is a podcast. So yes, continue, Jackie. (laughs) Yeah. So I, in 2017, I was a grad student. I was doing a joint degree in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School and then just had just started business school at Stanford. And it was a time when I was both really passionate about, basically, I had a really sex positive dad who was actually really empowering in the upbringing, both for me and my brother, where When we were teenagers, my brother got his first girlfriend. My dad gave my brother a lecture about the female orgasm that was science-backed, promoting the importance of basically like clitoracy or like understanding, he didn't use those words, but (laughs) about the importance of the clitoris and women's pleasure. And it was so unusual of an upbringing. I just thought my dad was quirky and didn't quite appreciate it when I was 19 getting a lecture from my dad about women's orgasms. But when I was in grad school, I started to realize how powerful that was because 
I shared a story about him in a class and so many people were so impacted hearing it and wanted to talk about parenting and pleasure and topics around sexuality. And so I started wanting to build a company related to women's sexual empowerment and women's pleasure. And then as I learned about the space, I saw this article with a photo of Polly Rodriguez from Unbound in the New York Times that said, Women of Sex Tech Unite. And I learned in the summer of 2017 that there was a whole industry of young women, many of them in their 30s or 20s, building businesses. And I realized I really wanted to help the overall infrastructure and the overall ecosystem of women's sexual health. So I started meeting and becoming friends with everyone I could talk with who was founding and growing a company to help women's intimate and sexual lives. And every single woman I talked to said that Facebook and Instagram weren't allowing them to advertise. And they often said this was the biggest barrier for them and growing, scaling, and helping other women. And so before realizing how huge that problem was, I thought I wanted to start a VC fund in women's sexual health. But I realized that just like you then grow their businesses and this censorship was stifling every aspect of the entrepreneurial ecosystem in women's health. And then it was much broader than women's pleasure. And so I started the Center for Intimacy Justice, started the work for it when I was in grad school with the goal of changing the digital censorship of women's sexual health and it's also reproductive health so that more women can help more women and non-binary people and people with vulvas and support reproductive and sexual health globally. Oh, wow. I love it. Okay. So let's rewind a little bit. I want to know more about your dad. Like, <laughs> Who is your dad? Also, how did you know this was unusual? The way that he talked about clitoris, as you said, absolutely obsessed with that term. Um, <laughs> but yeah, who's your dad? Like, tell us about your dad. My dad is awesome. I'm giving this talk in a couple of weeks in December. And like before I could even find out if my dad was allowed to have a pass, he lives in Santa Barbara, the talks in LA, and he already booked a home exchange, booked a vacation for him and his wife, and like is planning to be there at this talk. Um, oh my God, I love him. He is so special. He's also very quirky. My mom passed away a few years ago. And so he had to, I used to get these notifications where my dad would accidentally use my credit card to like open up a J-date profile or like an online <laughs> dating profile. So I would know like when he broke up with his girlfriend and at the time and when he was looking for new love and his, I think at one point he had a Tinder profile. He also, this is not about women's health, but he went That's on the okay. second- <laughs> this, is, this is also a podcast about Jackie. So Thanks. I want to know more about Jackie and like why Jackie does what she does. <laughs> but um, one of my favorite Ken Rotman story is he went on a second date with someone he met online where the second date was an 11-day trip to Burning Man. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, that's not, yep. <laughs> so that's Ken Rotman. Then he like burned this poem about my mother at the temple at Burning Man. But the reason I brought up his online dating is his dating profile said something like, rule breaker. He loves to break rules and be independent. So he definitely taught me like the importance of breaking rules in a good way. It was like rule breaker, something I don't remember, and then knows how to love and adore a woman. (laughs) I love that. I'm sure there were so many people being like, and like, let's go, let's go on a date. I also love that he calls himself a rule breaker. I mean, that's, I mean, to me, it's, kind of say that about my, like, I don't really, that's kind of why I'm not an entrepreneur. Like, I don't like to follow rules. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't like to follow rules, but yeah, it's almost like, sure, we like to break rules, but I think there's kind of a flip side to that. We're just really curious. What would happen if I didn't do things the way that they've always been done? So I feel like if kind of the rule breaker can also raise 
a rule breaker who was just like super curious. Yeah. And so many rules are wrong. Like I once did a personality test and it said I was the one that they were calling morality following rules. And I actually think so many rules are so immoral. And so I've got like 11% on that one because because <laughs> um, I challenge rules and challenge yeah. systems that are problematic. So Jackie, I feel like in the spirit of digging into how you got here with the Center for Intimacy Justice, I think being a women's health maverick is all about what led you here. You had a career in being a dance entrepreneur prior to the Center for Intimacy Justice. Would love to learn more about that and just a little bit about your passion for dance, which is something I cannot do at all. So please educate (laughs) me. I have no rhythm. (laughs) Everyone can dance. I feel like it's like intuition. Everybody has these abilities. You just have to expand them, which include dance and movement, which is a part of our birthright. So my foray into entrepreneurship was When I was 14, I started an organization that was called Everybody Dance Now. We actually just changed the name to Creative Network about 18 years in. So that's why I say it was. And I was doing a hip hop dance performance for teenagers with disabilities when halfway through my dance performance, the music stopped working. So we ended up inviting the audience members on stage for them to perform and them to dance and seeing how full of self-confidence and joy they were and seeing how connected the room was. I knew that I wanted to do something using dance for self-esteem and community building. And I was 12 at that time. So a year and a half later, I started Everybody Dance Now. We provide free dance programs to kids who otherwise can't afford them. And we've expanded. So we've been in close to 30 U.S. cities since we started. It was youth-led for the first decade. Now we're in Chicago, New York, and a couple of different cities in Southern California. And it's led now by a woman named Kelly Foreman and a global master teacher from Chicago named King Charles, who's the leader of Chicago Footwork. So that was a huge part of my journey. And I still, we were just in Thailand last November to speak at a reproductive rights conference. And we were walking into some learning activity about reproductive rights. And there was a group of four or five kids doing K-pop in the room next door to the sexual health presentation. And I was like, nowhere to be found. The rest of the presentation was the last one to board the bus (laughs) because I just felt so at home at this teen center and I learned K-pop and then we did Thai dance and then I led them in a cipher. And it's just like, you're in a totally different language or not language, but totally different part of the world, but I still think dance is such a powerful connector. And this 14-year-old boy was crying at the end of it because he was so happy. And I just love dance to bring people together and for connection. I love that. And I love how you describe what dance means to you and how it can be a connector. So hopefully someone at some point connects with me and teaches me how to dance because it's really embarrassing for my family to be around. (laughs) It's sort of how you feel. I started Um, putting, I now try to, when I do my, I have a morning daily practice routine and after I meditate, I do my prayer and I do my writing. I dance every day and I have a coach who encouraged me to do that. And I was like, wait, you can just make dance a part of your daily practice. Like it's so much more fun to me than meditating. So I've been doing it and I think no matter how your moves are, it's just a good way to connect with your body and your thoughts and yeah. your feelings and so healing. Yeah, I do agree with that. I do. <laughs> I have done Megan Roop's Sculpt Society, Ooh. which I'm really, I'm really enjoying. So it's cardio dance. So it's a great way to get on a workout. And even when I'm, I was traveling for ASRM a couple of weeks ago and I was just feeling very tired in my hotel room. I just landed and I had to like boost myself up for a dinner and I did a 10 minute cardio dance class. And they're like, no, nobody should ever watch me do that. Whenever I do a cardio dance class, I'm like, totally. I'm like, 
I told my husband, like, Sean, do not come anywhere near this room. Do not watch this. But I felt really good. So you're right. In terms of connecting with others, I'm sure it's great. But in terms of (laughs) connecting with oneself and one's feelings and one's birthright, you know, which is, I love how you just felt that. So anyway. Yeah, I I will say related to your embarrassment of not wanting other people to see it. My chief of staff, we have a video being made about Center for Intimacy Justice. And she talked with the filmmakers before and she was like, yeah, you should have Jackie dance on camera. And then I heard about this and I was like, what? Like, I'm going to dance in a work video? What? So I was nervous too, but... I got, I got out of it because it ended up being moved to a park in Oakland. So they didn't ask me to do it. <laughs> well, thank goodness for Oakland. Okay, so fast forwarding. So yeah. we've done kind of a shallow layer of this discussion, but I want to get a little bit deeper. So after the dance stuff, you'd already been to college. At that point, did you decide to go to the Kennedy School after that and the GSB after that? How did that go? And how did the Center for Intimacy Justice, like at what point in your education did CIJ come out of that? Yeah. So I went to grad school about four years after college. I was working in women's rights, but I hadn't faced as many personal experiences that made me as passionate about gender equality as I am now. And then I went to grad school and so I'd worked for four years, started school again. And the second semester at Harvard Kennedy School, I experienced a sexual assault by a Harvard law student. And it was just two or three weeks after I had told my dad I wanted to start, I told my dad my words were, I wanted to figure out, this was unrelated to the assault and before it and completely separately, I said, I wanted to figure out an innovative business model to close the orgasm gap for women. So I was just starting to think about wanting to create a business around women's sexuality. And I had this very positive relationship to sexuality that was not full of shame and was really empowering. And then I found myself having to also heal from now a much more complicated and a much more traumatic relationship to intimacy and to connection and to my experiences. And so anyway, it was the second semester of grad school that I just, from seeing how my university silenced me and seeing how unjustly they treat campus sexual assault, it sparked and instilled this huge passion in me to take on these issues from a much deeper part of my heart and soul and body and from having to heal a lot of trauma in the coming years. And so that happened second semester at Harvard. Then a few months later, moved to Stanford because it was a program where you spent some time at each. And that's when I started interviewing women my second quarter at Stanford. And I was really shy about it. I would go to entrepreneurship events and be totally unable to say what I was doing because I was so afraid that if you talked about women's sexuality, that it would make you a subject of more danger. And I never talked about it publicly. Wow. It's kind of like, I didn't even expect you to say like a subject of more danger. That must've been completely opposite to your, and first of all, I'm so sorry that that happened, Becky. And, you know, I know that that's like a part of a story that you publicly share. And for me, I'm like, obviously from the followers of the podcast. I'm so sorry that that happened. It's so shitty and so not okay. What I'm curious to learn is how the university handled it and how you wish that universities handled these events because they are going to happen. What's kind of your vision for how this is dealt with in the normal world? First of all, that it doesn't happen, but in the unfortunate case that it does, how should the university deal with it? So the way that they handled it It happened three months before this guy was supposed to graduate and investigations typically take about six months at Harvard. And so I wasn't going to report it. And then I learned that 90% of campus rape happens by repeat offenders and 60% of it. Yeah. And 60%, I learned this from a a company called Callisto, a research study that also showed that someone else had written that showed that 60% of campus rape could be stopped if people were stopped after their second attempt. So when I read that, 
I felt a desire to help other women to not be harmed by the same person. And I wanted to do whatever I could in my power to prevent this repeat harm. So I wanted a solution that I thought could prevent repeat harm and also support healing and try to change this person's behavior. And so for how I think universities should do it differently, I mean, I feel like right now you have two options for reporting sexual assault. What if it's campus related? You can report it through a Title IX investigation with the university. You can go to the police. You could do both or you can do neither. And most people, I don't know the stat, but I think it's about over 90% do. They just never report it or take any type of reporting action. And only a small percentage of them even seek counseling. It's just so mm-hmm. common. Mm-hmm. So I think for those that do do investigations, I think there's lots of, with Title IX, I think there's lots of ways they can be improved to be less re-traumatizing and that universities can better understand trauma responses to make more accurate and informed decisions. And also for Harvard, they almost never find someone responsible if it's rape and they don't publish the statistics specific to sexual assault. They just lump them in with all their other stats. So you can't really publicly see that they're not having responsibility findings. So I think that's wrong. But for me, I actually wanted a restorative justice process, which was totally different and is more a facilitated process in which you don't even have that process unless the person who's caused harm admits harm. It doesn't Instead of being about proving, did this happen? You say, yes, like harm was caused. And then the process is actually about asking, how can we repair the harm? How can we address needs? How can we prevent this from happening? And you both bring in your support systems, families and communities in trying to rectify it. And that was not heard of in 2017. And Mm -hmm. I tried to create what would have been one of the very first restorative justice processes ever for campus rape because it was so not in the paradigms that people were thinking about for justice. And it was also legally disincentivized for universities. So that's something that I'm reviving work on because some amazing women in my community are also really passionate about restorative justice and creating alternatives and additional options. And I think it's probably less, my estimate of just survivors I've talked with is I think it's probably less than 10% of the survivors that I know who actually want a restorative justice process. I think many people either want a punitive process or to do nothing. And I, not to do nothing, but to just not have to confront it in that way. And I respect all of that. And what I want is more options on the menu so that if people voluntarily are seeking that and asking for that, and it's not for every situation, but I think we need more options than the existing ones that we have. And then people can choose, you know, where their soul is called and what would be helpful for them. But that would be additional one on the menu. Yeah. Wonderful information. Thank you. This is not a topic that I feel super educated on, but I feel that much more educated. And I think your curiosity and learning the facts, hopefully that's also another thing that we can start doing more of, mm. just the repeat offender conversation. Yeah, and totally. Just the awareness of those statistics. I feel like that can do a little bit of good versus women who encounter these situations and they're just absolutely heartbreaking and they don't understand. They don't have the pay it forward attitude that you had, but you went out and sought those statistics. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for sharing that. Well, fast forward to the GFB. So tell us more about CIJ. Yeah. So you I started these you, interviews. Yeah. I love that you care so much to ask so much about like the person. It's like we haven't oh even gosh, gotten of course. to this. <laughs> the business is <laughs> nothing without the person. Oh, <laughs> it's nice to like for people to get to know you yes. and what motivates you and hopefully see other parts of their stories in it. Okay. So fast forward, I'm at the GSD. I'm meeting all these women every winter break and spring break. I would just fly to New York and talk, interview entrepreneurs in sex tech and developed 
the idea of creating Center for Intimacy Justice as an advocacy organization with our first issue area being, well, our first goal for the first few years was specifically change Facebook's, at the time it was called Facebook, now it's Meta, but to change Meta's global advertising policies in which it was this policy called the adult product services and policy that people were most commonly citing as the policy that made it so they couldn't advertise. So interviewed a couple dozen women or more, and then a pelvic health company called Origin initiated a survey that we did together. And to get collectively, we had 60 women and non-binary entrepreneurs in this space surveyed or interviewed, and 100% of them said that Facebook rejected their ads at some point, Facebook or Instagram. And 50% wow. of them, I, yeah. I can be number 61. Yeah. Because yeah, we like, I mean, uh, obviously, it's like not even a question. Oh my gosh. Of course, we've had yeah, rejected. Totally. And that was a couple of years ago. So now we have hundreds well into the two, three yeah, hundreds totally. of companies and nonprofits and content, you know, even more if you count content creators. So they were all saying they'd experienced this. The public didn't know this. And 50% of the ones we surveyed also said that their entire accounts were suspended at some point. And so we, the, you and all of us working in this space, know this, but the public didn't know it. There had been some media articles, but it would be about three or four examples. And so after business school, and before that, I published an op-ed in the New York Times, which was awesome because I think I was like 26 or 27 at the time. And it was the title that the editor picked was Vaginas Deserve Giant Ads Too. Mm -hmm. And it was published right when Dame, this sex tech company, was suing the New York City subways and the graphic artists made this designed cartoon of painting. Of <laughs> we had this whole analogy saying we have all these cactuses to represent erectile dysfunction ads that were everywhere in the subways at that time in 2019. And mm -hmm. we were saying, where are all the papayas? Where are all yeah, the, the peaches? And, yeah. I think the week or two after business school, I published that op-ed and it was a display piece in print right in between Eli Broad and Thomas Friedman. So I was <sighs> super excited. <laughs> Holy hell. Yeah. For, for any founders, for any founders or literally anyone listening, like, what is it like to try to get an op-ed published in the New York Times? It's addicting. When it happens, you're just like, <laughs> like is it? Who do you contact? How do you do it? Who do you contact? Truly, like, practically, did you have a person who was helping you do this? What was that like? You can't just write the New York Times and be like, hey, I have an idea. Here's the piece. Please publish it. Or was it like that? Yeah, I could share each time because I've now had three things in there right. and hopefully more ahead. So each time was different, but one piece of context was, I will answer the question of tactically, but just as context for like how much I wanted this, about a year before that New York Times op-ed was published, I was with my partner at the time and I was having a flashback because it was about five days after Harvard had finished my investigation of rape. And Harvard said, I thought that they were going to say, and basically, they said that no penetration ever happened. They said that the entire thing just didn't happen. Not that it was consensual and happened, but just, oh, I just made up that this person was inside me. And so I was actually like making love to my partner at the time. And I just started screaming because I hadn't talked about the findings with anyone. And I was so angry. And I was pointing out the irony that I was obviously screaming about something that never happened to me. Like the most painful thing, of course, I'm screaming about something that just doesn't exist sarcastically. And then once I stopped screaming, I sat up and I felt like all the legal tools had failed. Everything I had researched and looked into, like all the tools were broken for survivors and for people trying to take on challenging systems. And so I remember sitting up in bed and saying, I sat up really straight and I said, I need to learn how to use the media because at least it was just a few months into Me Too, but 
the legal tools were not helping us. And so I was on a mission to figure out how to use the media to affect change. And I'd never published an op-ed before. I'd never done any PR campaigns. And I was just like, we have to win. So then my only New Year's resolution for 2019 was published op-eds. Because I think that op-eds are really powerful in terms of building credibility. It's in your voice. It's your story. And so... And you've, I was also, like, my, you've also said, I mean, told me a little bit about yourself over email prior to this interview, but you are a very passionate writer. You love to write. So that was a a muscle that you have that you can use to your advantage and getting across things that you want to change about the world. Yeah, you're so sweet. I'm trying to, I can say so much about my relationship to writing. I'm trying to hone into it more. But yeah, because I was censored a lot when I was younger. I wasn't allowed to actually do creative writing for 11 years, which is a very long story, but it was considered too stimulating. Like the ways that women are censored are so many ways. So I literally just didn't do creative writing because I thought it would make me like too mystical, which was not allowed in my family, which is true. I do get very connected to source when I'm doing creative writing, <laughs> so, but it's not too much. It's like a superpower. Anyway, so, okay, I really wanted to publish an op-ed. So then for how it happened, there's a 72-year-old, or I don't know how old he is now. He's in his 70s. I thought he was in his 60s. He might've been 68 at the time, but white man <laughs> who had been an editor at the New York Times for about a quarter century, who was a writing professor at Stanford because he very publicly talks about how he like, he calls himself an American idiot because he left the New York Times to like follow a woman to California for love. And now he's teaching at Stanford. Anyway, he is, along with my dad and maybe some others, has become like one of the biggest allies for women's orgasms and for women's sexual pleasure. So he is my professor and I told him I had 12 ideas for op-eds. I called him like three months before the class about op-ed writing started. And he was just like, wait, he wants me to be an investigative journalist because he was like, all of these are really amazing. And then so he read my op-ed drafts about this op-ed. And actually, Nick Kristoff came to class and this professor, Glenn Kramen, was like, thank you for making me look really good in front of Nick Kristoff. Cause, <laughs> and I was like, well, as a writer, I'm used to fundraising where you ask people for favors. But when you're creating the ideas and the content, you're giving other people favors. So I was like, I'm That's doing you a favor. Such an interesting. Yeah. I was like, you're like an asset. Your ideas. Yeah. This is yeah. kind of like raising capital. You're yeah. putting together drafts. You're asking mentors for review. You're asking for introductions. And it's that the core KPI for an entire year. Yeah. You hone into it as though a founder would hone into fundraising. Yeah. So that makes a ton of sense. But yeah, yeah. totally. So and he helped like, me and he submitted are, it. Yeah, you make the report yeah. good. Totally. Yeah. So he like after like many conversations where we're like, is orgasm a verb or a noun? And people are overhearing us and they're like, what are you doing at Stanford Business School? But I'm like, Glenn, it's a it's a verb. So we can like save a word there. It's both. Anyway, so it's like great guy. But he like I felt like we were like besties because he reminded me of my dad. So I was very comfortable talking about sex with him publicly. So anyway, he basically sent it to the head of opinion and said, like, this is I don't know if I'm allowed to, but he said, like, this is the best investigative hub I've ever sent you. He sent it to the gender reporter. Woon. And say, and yeah. And then once that was published, I was like, I want to do this yeah, more. It was a really good feeling. So that was 2019. And then in 2022 was when we published an investigation. We wanted to specifically focus on Meta. And this time we did hire a consultant. We worked with Rachel Johnston, who was one of the people who also broke the Laura DiCarlo story. She had worked on, well, back when CES didn't allow the sex toy company, she had done a lot of that PR. So she had a very activist lens. And we actually sent it to 75 press outlets. And the one I cared about the most was the New York Times. I'm kind of obsessed with them for affecting change. And out of the 75, Valeria Safranova is the one who covered it the most closely. And 
I think I didn't know at the time how to explain that I wanted an exclusive, but I think I only would have published it if probably the New York Times had done it. Otherwise, I would have sued Facebook or something until we got the New York Times to cover it. So I was really, I mean, I'm glad we didn't sue them, but I was really glad that Valaria picked it up and that was like the first person we pitched there. One thing I will say is I have submitted something blind to the New York Times before for a letter to the editor and they do take those. So I really encourage people who are trying to publish something like you can also just submit. I've also done Boston Globe where I didn't have a connection. I just did the open submission process and had an essay published. So it's really powerful to get your voice and published. And so you can also, the letter to editor was just totally cold through the regular process and people can do that too. So you launched this investigation and so you gathered all these interviews. You said, wow, I'm onto something. And then you launched this investigation. What did that look like? Tell us a little bit more about the nuts and bolts and how you kind of start to finish, how you collected data and then the point of one of the largest organizations in the world. <laughs> you said how you what the point? How you proved how you... a point. One yeah. Of the largest... yeah. It was, this is why I feel so, the power of investigations and sharing truth is amazing because what we did is we said, this is the problem. This is the data behind it. We didn't even, at the time it was just revealing the problem. And I was amazed at how much could happen just from putting data in the public and shining a light on it. So we shared the results of these 60 businesses. It was valuable for the people writing about it to have the data where we collected it for 60 instead of three or four so that we could point to a clear pattern. And basically we shared it with a few reporters. We found out the Times was covering it and a few others. And then Literally, I was up until like two or three or four in the morning with a friend, Adam Alcock, who was volunteering to help me update the website because at the time I was the only staff person with Center for Intimacy Justice and we'd raised some money from the case for her and some other anonymous backers and also Polly Rodriguez from Unbound at that time had put money as a donation in and RNW Media. So we had a little bit of funding, but we were tiny, 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 like just me basically and like friends helping me at night and one other consultant. So we published it and then responded to the there was like amazing support and outrage and follow-up about the meta investigation. But what was really exciting and I think speaks to the power of why I love sharing investigations is a few things happened very soon after we published the New York Times story. One is that a U.S. senator named Senator Patty Murray, who headed the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, wrote a public letter to Meta demanding answers from Meta. So Meta did answer to Congress. And the letter was, what are you going to do about Center for Intimacy Justice's report? This is the evidence. What is your response? <laughs> and you're like, you're like, I'm just Jackie over here in oh. my office with my friends helping me at night. That is amazing. Yeah. Patty, go Patty, go Senator Murray. And then Hillary Clinton, we think she, we think this was really her and that was organic. So Hillary Clinton tweeted at Patty Murray a couple weeks later saying, hey, Patty, just curious, has Meta responded yet? And they had a whole back and forth and Hillary Clinton's like, oh, they must be really busy with their stock price. But thank you so much. Oh. <laughs> she was like, and it just, the yeah. So Hillary was like, thank you, Patty. I know you'll stay on them. And that was organic. And I somehow saw the tweets two days after it happened. I hadn't even known about the senator's letter. And so and we like, were like, oh my gosh. Jackie's friends and all this. Like, come on, guys. Keep yeah. <laughs> and like, literally, friends were just mentoring me about like, you need to do. I was like, what do I do now? Like, what do I do with the senators? <laughs> but I think it's one thing that people don't realize. Nobody on the CIJ team had any experience with DC law. I mean, I did like high school youth group trips where you talk to your Congress people, but we'd never work with DC. We'd never, I mean, we did that op-ed, but we'd never hired a publicist. We'd never had any experience. And I think when you're just really passionate and you really want to change something and you want to help these women, you can 
access these superpowers and you can ask people for advice and find allies when it is now 70s. And like you can do things without having to go and work for like the World Bank or Meta for 10 or 20 years. We can just do a lot. (laughs) What an amazing story. So what is Meta doing now? Like has Meta done anything about this? Yeah, so... Next answer. Also, I'll pick up like chronologically from so Hillary Clinton did that. There were some other things that happened that summer with more action on this. And we don't get to talk about all of them. But basically what I'll say is that like government agencies did take this seriously. And there was a lot of questioning for Meta. And so it's a mixed answer in terms of what Meta has done on this, because as I'm sure you know, (laughs) and like people watching this. So we saw in fall 2022 that Meta had made changes to their adult product services policy. They'd also updated also their nudity policy to say that if the ads had medical or educational purposes when it came to breast health, they were supposed to be allowed. And so at that point, when we noticed, okay, there's 180 new words to what used to be 120 word policy. So 60% of it is just like entirely new wording. We were really excited because There had been no movement on this for like the five years that I'd been aware of it and for the over a decade that anything had happened. And so we didn't celebrate, wow, there was some movement here. We were able to build enough collective power together that there's 180 new words. And even though, regardless of what Meta says, what we noticed is that basically Meta added examples of things that were allowed. And they said that ads about relieving pain during sex were supposed to be allowed, which was exactly one of the examples of ads that we had shown that we said wasn't allowed in our report, in our investigation. They said that symptoms to relieve menopause were supposed to be allowed. Sex education was supposed to be allowed. So they added examples that were the exact same examples that we had profiled when we picked a few categories in addition to obviously many more types of health were included beyond those three or four. So they added all these examples that were clearly in our report. So we do believe that we impacted the policy regardless of whether they will say so. What was interesting is that as it had before, this particular policy, uh, the adult products and services policy, still said that pleasure was not allowed. But in the very same addition to the policy, they said that erectile dysfunction drugs ads are allowed and premature ejaculation ads are allowed. So it's like saying we allow pleasure, we don't then, allow pleasure ads. But yeah, and then the examples that they called out for the pleasure ads that weren't allowed was they specifically said that sex toy ads are not allowed. And they always say that in their comments about what is and isn't allowed. And I don't like the word sex toy because it infantilizes things Mm -hmm. to call it a toy when like, this is a powerful device that can like lubricate you, like make penetration like more possible when it might be difficult otherwise. For me as a survivor, like I also think vibrators can be really helpful if you're recovering from trauma and you're trying to experience intimacy. And it's if there's all that stimulation, really you're just more, for me, it makes intimacy a lot easier if I'm engaging in other things. So, or like penetrative sex. So, and it's amazing. It's all these benefits of vibrators around pain and other benefits beyond pleasure in terms of lubrication, other aspects of sexual function. So vibrators are like a powerful device. I think we yeah, should no doubt. about and like, vibrators. Like look at the yeah. business of vibrators, right? Oh my God. It's, it's like all you have to do, time. right? Yeah. Like all you have to do is look at the business case for vibrators. It's such really. a bigger market than ED. So anyway, we think that they should still change that. We think it's totally sexist and all about vibrators that they need a better medical understanding of the multitude of benefits, including in menopause and pain, which basic says are allowed. So there's the policy changes and then so it's, you know, mixed and nuanced, but we did celebrate what was different, what was better. But I will say that in 2023, we surveyed many, many founders. And with the exception of one that said her business is like saved because of CIJ's work and some that might say that the appeals process could be better for them. 
the vast majority of businesses in vaginal health and breast health are saying that absolutely nothing has changed. Even Joylux, which had two huge photos in the New York Times article with our investigation in 2022 and was interviewed in that article, like even with all that press, uh, 11 months after the investigation was published, their entire ad account was suspended for two months starting Black Friday week. So and it's like to very think little about, changed. To think about the marketing mix. So a lot of these no, no, maybe characterize a little bit. Like I can imagine who these 60 companies are and what they do. But if I had to take a gander, there are probably a lot of direct consumer businesses that truly meta ads are a huge piece of their marketing mix. Mm-hmm. And they're, a lot of them are venture back. They have really aggressive growth KPIs. They absolutely have to run ads so they can sell products that people want to buy so they can prove out numbers to their VCs so they can get more money to continue to build their businesses. Like, it's a really bad problem. It's a really big problem, obviously. Totally. Yeah, there's yeah. no replacement to digital advertising. You're never no. going to grow as much from subway ads or billboard ads. And commercial TV and radio podcasts is so expensive compared to Facebook ads. So the founder of Femtech Insider retweeted a tweet that I think put things well, where they said, let me explain to you, either Silicon Valley or VC, like VCs give startups money. Startups give... Mm-hmm. Facebook and Google money or Meta and Google money, and then there's growth. And then that makes VCs money. So when you can't, (laughs) like that's the business for money of these startups. So when you can't access digital advertising, it is, I won't call it a death sentence because people are finding ways to survive and grow, but it's incredibly crippling. We've seen that the couple of erectile dysfunction startups that were founded back in 2017, when a lot of these other businesses were seeking to advertise, erectile dysfunction became allowed to advertise pretty early into those businesses' trajectories because investors knew that that was essential and were able to get Facebook to make certain changes that extended to other AD companies, mm-hmm. you know, which is obviously so understood as like, this is medical because, <laughs> and anyway, Q, and there's a reason. bro accent. Anyway, and the reason, I mean, I think ED ads should be allowed. I think part of why it was allowed is because they found correlations between heart disease and erectile function. So that was a great like, creative piece. I'm sure if we studied women's pleasure and how it's linked to other types of health, we would find everything. Mental everything. Health. <laughs> Mental health is importantly. Like what's that connection, right? But anyway, so, the ED companies yeah. are valued at $5 billion, but just a few years later, but a lot of women's health businesses couldn't reach that same growth. All right, well... Thank goodness for you, NCAJ. So as you, it's crazy that we're almost at time, but as you think about kind of the future of CAJ, like what are you looking to re-script or reframe or rewrite the narrative on? How are you thinking about kind of the future of CAJ? I love that you asked about rescripting and rewriting the narrative because that's actually very linked with exactly how we're thinking about this work. We're at the same time that we're continuing our work on tech platforms and changing big tech platforms. We know that these issues of suppressing information about women's sexuality, women's sexual health, and not just women, but people of of underrepresented genders as well, and people of different backgrounds, that the suppression of our sexuality or sexual health and well-being is not only a technological problem, but is a cultural problem. And that these issues were in existence and were problematic and enforced long before Mark Zuckerberg was born. So it's critical that we change the tech platforms and these big tech companies. It's essential. And we're continuing to advocate on it and have policy strategies, legal strategies, media strategies. We're leading investigations into TikTok, Amazon, Google, and Meta. But as we create our strategic plan and talk with our partners about 2024 through 2026, we're also really passionate about film, storytelling, narrative change, like related to the kinds of spaces that you're doing too around narratives because 
technological and culture change have to go hand in hand. So people are going to be seeing a lot more film work from us, a lot more writing, also about topics on consent, other aspects of I'm writing my first book that has all topics around women's sexuality, how it's treated in our society with tech suppression being a part of it, but a much broader story of basically like women are fighting these fights to change online censorship. And at the same time, so many women I know are dealing with rape that happens through work or early menopause that the doctors don't talk about or these other challenges. And we're all coming together to create changes, but we're broadening the conversation beyond just Facebook, TikTok, and Google to also talk about what needs to change in our society, what needs to change in our communities, what needs to change in our stories around how we treat women's sexual health every day. Because the clitoris is, was, Bring the, it back was to the taken, clitoris. Yeah, back to the clitoris. But I think part of what my dad and what my grandfather who gave my dad that talk my dad gave me were leading into is that they were bringing up this knowledge in their families. And like, I think it was the 1960s when my dad got this lecture I didn't tell you my dad had gotten this lecture about the clitoris from his dad. That's how it all started. Yay, Jews in the Midwest. <laughs> but in like the 60s, but from, you know, that was 1960, but from the year 2000 AD to 1600 AD, the clitoris was just removed from anatomical textbooks because one Greek physician, it didn't really fit into like the point he was trying to make. And that's 1400 years. So, and ChatGPT, as of a few weeks ago, if you asked about the clitoris or the vulva, they would say it's a content violation, but the very same questions with the word penis would answer it. I think they've since made some changes to that, but there's these broader forces that these large models are picking up to that make people think that our bodies are obscene and our pleasure and well-being is obscene. So we are taking on these broader societal issues, getting more information, more investigations, more ideas into people's minds and hearts and family dinner conversations about women's sexuality in a positive, empowering way that's good for young women and for all people. So that's what we're up to next. <laughs> My heart is bursting. I'm just so happy that it's you doing this work and that somebody is doing this work. So thank you on behalf thank of you. millions of women in America and all over the world who are also affected by the technology oh. platforms like all of us are. So if anyone's listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, I desperately want to help Jackie. Where can they find you? How can they reach out? Thank you. And I want to say it's not just me. We have a team of amazing women from all over the world on the CIJ team and the research team and all these other friends that thank you for, I'm obviously I'm the one communicating on this podcast. So join our newsletter at intimacyjustice.org because that's where we send campaigns, updates, hopefully like some possible short films coming out and events in different parts of the country that we want to launch next year in person to build a movement collectively and in person together as a movement. So join the newsletter at intimacyjustice.org. Follow us at intimacyjustice on Twitter, Instagram. We're just at our full name for LinkedIn and Facebook. So join us online, connect with us. There's also a petition at intimacyjustice.org slash, I think it's just slash petition. I don't think it's FTC petition, but we are asking the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to take action regarding Meta. And we filed a legal complaint asking the FTC to do that. So people can sign the petition and that will also loop them into the next activities. And we need to grow this movement. I think we all know in the women's health space about this, or we've known about this problem of sex censorship. We're expanding that. So now we have some allies in Congress in DC and in media, but most people still don't know about this. And so just sharing this podcast part of this episode that talks about this, sharing the intimacyjustice.org slash report link for our report. And sharing information is a really powerful way for people to see what they're not seeing because this is censored in ways that people don't realize is a problem yet. So share the word. Yes. And thank you so much, Abby, for, you know, creating this platform to educate more people about women's health. 
Of course. Yay, women's health. Yay, us. Well, thank you so much, Jackie. And I am sure we will talk soon. If this podcast means something to you, be sure to hit follow or subscribe. This helps you because you'll never miss an episode. And it helps us because you'll never miss an episode. It's wild enough to be a woman without taking on the wild west of women's health information. The good news is that Rescripted did the legwork on your body so you don't have to. And we're here when you're ready to be an expert in you. Head to Rescripted.com and follow us at Hello Rescripted on Instagram and TikTok.